listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi everyone, I'm Robin Whittaker. And I'm Brian Fulcordia. And we are in week six of Epiphany, and the readings Brian and I will discuss today are Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, 21 to 37, and 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9. Let's start with Deuteronomy, Brian. What's uh, going on? Where are, where are we in this text? So we're going towards the end of Deuteronomy, um, and in the literary context suggests that um, Moses is preparing the new generation of Israelites uh, to enter the new land, um, and obviously there's a lot of uh, anxiety, I guess, but also this, this genuine excitement of, of venturing into these new lands. Um, a bit of sadness as well, because Moses won't be joining them. Yep. Um, but Moses, uh, as the leader, is uh, prepping them with this, uh, with this series of speeches. Um, and that, that's the literary context that we have right now um, of Moses um, telling them the type of behavior that they that it's expect, expected of them yep. um, with this rather casuistic uh, language of if you choose this path the path of righteousness everything will fall into place for you you'll be blessed multiply um, multiple times mm. um, and at the same time if you choose uh, wicked behavior then you will be uh, cursed multiple times um, so that that's the literary context, um, and and perhaps I might also uh, say a little bit about the the dating of this text, which yeah. most scholars um, have argued of a late post-exilic um, date. Mm. Uh, and and for for our listeners, we're we're talking about a time that's uh, beyond the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple um, in the sixth uh, century BC. Um, And therefore, during that time, um, there's all these words of uh, hope, but also words of warning, Mm. um, because, you know, the temple's been destroyed, there's a lot of desolation and devastation, um, and there's language that reflects the whole uh, feeling of not wanting this to happen again um, for this uh, post-exilic community. So... I think you know, that's they're, really they're, helpful to think about the narrative, like in, in the logic of the narrative, this is yeah. a kind of farewell speech of Moses, a looking back over the giving of the law, a kind of summing up. Right. But, yeah, to remember that later context, and I guess I, um, I'm i interested to know what you think, Brian, about how does that change the way we read the text, to think of it in this post-exilic, post-war context? What what might we notice yeah. differently if we think of it in that context? Yeah, it def- it's definitely um, a difficult thing to do um, mm. when you're trying to imagine Moses um, and the way Moses was was speaking to the community, um, the, the the Exodus community, um, and then have this whole backstory um, of where the words um, came out of the life setting, perhaps. Um, so, I guess what we what we you try to do as a reader is to try and draw those. Uh, distinctions um, and also the similarities between the two yeah. uh, where the words become um, yes they they do encourage righteous behavior um, but to understand them within the context of the post exile 
uh, mm. post-exilic community, um, we're understanding also that there is a genuine um, thirst for hope, uh, thirst for new, uh, for newness. Yep. Um, because you know they've undergone this very terrifying um, experience, um, and some of them um, are, are sort of still. I will. I guess the whole community is still very much. Um, Sad and uh, about yeah, the traumatized, whole, but yeah, traumatized. Yeah, so they need they need hope. There, there is yeah. a need for. And it's interesting to me in the midst, like if we think of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy written in that context, and and other texts as well, written by this Deuteronomist author, as scholars refer to them. Um, you know, there, there's there's something very new about it, but there's also something that's calling them right back to the traditions, right? The re- yeah. reaffirmation of yeah. um, Torah, of this instruction and the commandments that were given. Um, right. Just before this, I read a bit of context um, to kind of remind myself what was going on in Deuteronomy 30, <laughs> and I was really struck back in verse 6. We get this language of um, circumcise your heart so that you might love the Lord your God. And um you know, we don't always associate that language of heart and love with with law. We we can fall mm. into the trap of thinking it's all very legalistic. But, um, I mean, again, we've got language of love and we've got, I think I counted at least seven references in this little passage we've got today of, of references to life. Choose life, live. Um, so let, let's talk about what we, what we do with all of that. There's clearly an emphasis post-war on life going forward, like that the walking with God, following God's statutes and commandments leads to life. We yep. also get maybe problematic language of prosperity bundled in there and blessings. So what do we do with that? Yeah, well, I guess when we when we think about the the, the name of the book itself, Deuteronomy, um, mm. you know, which is Greek for second law. Yep. Um, so the reiteration of those legal traditions um, from Exodus um, and emphasizing um, the, the significance of the Torah, uh, but with different reason, right? You, you, I mean, when you do a quick comparison of the, the, the you know, the Decalogue or the, the Ten Commandments, um, there is there are some noted differences based on the context. Yeah. Uh, one example being the Sabbath law. Uh, one emphasizes because of because God rested on the Sabbath. The other says it's because of this relationship with. Um, uh, you know the 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 alien um, residents mm-hmm. to be kind to them because you once were slaves as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know the the importance of the Torah is is quite significant, but it's 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 and, and this is why it's it, the point that you brought up about life is so important here because mm-hmm. when we think about law and and in, in our modern times. It's often associated with conviction, uh, you know, with um, with, with punishment, mm. uh, you know, with spending time in jail, even that type of those type of associations. And those type of associations don't have a life affirming uh, tendencies. Um, in, in fact, they lack them. So it's quite interesting that here in Deuteronomy, the the, the repetition of life, and, and and you know, if we if we think about um, the number seven um, and all those. Mm thoughts that come to our head with the number yeah. seven um you know it, it's it's quite intriguing that the, the repetitive um emphasis on life it, it it does suggest that torah is about life um yeah. it's not a following for the sake of you know 
maintaining the status quo um, per se, but it's, it's, it does have a life-affirming um, properties that need to be um, maintained, especially in a community such as the post-exilic community where life um, is, uh, you know, at stake. Yeah. And it reminds me of um, in later Christian tradition, you'll get the sort of, um, you know, different ways Christians will talk about this sort of choosing two paths, the two ways, mm-hmm. um, this also Greek philosophical texts that talk about this and and very much there is the sense that a choice is put before the people. Again, if we think of this as post-exilic as they're kind of reforming community, looking to the future, you Mm. can walk with God according to these ancient traditions um, and that Mm. will be life-affirming or, you know, the juxtaposition, which we're going to get in Matthew when we get to that gospel too, is again, Mm. there's death and curse. Yes, um, that's right. So th- there is a threat in there, right? I mean, it's yeah, there is a, there is that threat, and and perhaps that that is a fact uh, a feature of the problematic nature of of that Deuteronomic theology, mm. um, because we know in reality um, work doesn't no life doesn't work out that way all the time. Um, you know, just because you do something righteous, it doesn't always mean that you're going to get blessing or um, or, or the good. End yeah. of the stick, um, which is the theology, uh, you know, for our listeners, this is the, the main theology that's being promoted and pushed in the rest of the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, but, and, you know, forgive me as being a, uh, you know, a skeptical wisdom person um, <laughs> uh, who, who, who um, still thinks that Ecclesiastes is the number one text in the Bible. Um, <laughs> that's okay. I think that for the New Testament, it's Revelation. So we can just re- we rewrite canonical emphasis with just Ecclesiastes and Revelation and everyone that's, that's will be like, right. that's nuts. But yeah. That's right, and I think, and I think the, the, the you know the biblical text will suffice with with those two yeah, texts. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> what else do we need? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, but, sorry, you know, back to your yeah. point about the wisdom yeah. tradition. Yeah. So in all in in all seriousness, you, you get texts like Ecclesiastes and Job, mm. um, who are known as skeptical texts uh, of this tradition of skeptical wisdom, where you know they look at. They look at the the, the Deuteronomic theology um, and think, okay, well, according to what I'm seeing, this is not the case. Um, you know, you, you read through Deuteronomy, um, uh, you know, chapter eight, um, where, you know, the the that Kohelet, oh, um, in Ecclesiastes, um, I'm talking about the author yep. says he's seen a lot of these things and they don't make sense. Um, we've seen those who are not righteous, who are wicked, who are actually prospering. Um, and we see those who are, um, are wicked that are actually um, being blessed. So, you know, the, the reality of the world um, doesn't quite reflect the conventional path um, which um, Deuteronomy promotes. And mm-hmm. so that's why this Deuteronomic theology can be quite problematic. Yeah. And I think for preachers that that getting that balance your naming is hard because we want to often, you know, do deep dives and preach certain texts and we need yes. to, you know, I think name explicitly that that theology there is there. Um, but mm. it's also not the only theology in the Bible. And we get these ca- we get these counter voices precisely because there is an, an awareness um, mm. that you can be righteous, you can follow the Torah, you can love God, you can love your neighbour and horrible things can still happen to you. So this yes. live long and prosper um, doesn't always look like we think it should um, and it's not mm. always our human experience. I mean, yeah. That's right. 
And so then the, the next question is, um, what do we do then? I mean, if, mm. if we're... If we're privy to that, if we uh, if we acknowledge the problematic nature of this type of thinking and this type of theology, um, how do we preach then? Um, mm. What other what type of? I mean, we still got to we got we still got to preach about hope, right? Yeah. Um, and, and and it's and it's quite fitting then that you know in verse nineteen of Deuteronomy um, thirty, we we hear those words: "Choose life, yeah, um, so that you you and your descendants may live." Um, and there's a lot of hope in that. And and I think that when we reflect a little bit more on that and read in light of that post-exilic community, which is a very human experience, um, we, we we see that hope, therefore, is an acknowledgement of our human state, yeah. um, where we must be privy to our humanity and that um, we understand that um, suffering um, is part of the human experience. And that's not to validate suffering, but that to be aware of our human condition. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, as Christians, this means we do not privilege ourselves over others, yeah. uh, but that we acknowledge that there are others with the same human condition who are also um, privy to suffering. Um, and so, I'm thinking along those lines and thinking that hope, therefore, becomes some sort of a joint venture of sharing and compassion um, as human souls, um, listening to one another's um, stories, hearing another um, one another's stories their truth telling walking together um, and so they're choosing life then when we when we think about it is about choosing to be uh, life affirming choosing to be a better so how do, what does yeah. that entail choosing to be a better listener a better companion better yeah. ally better friend partner family member better Christian yep. and in a lot of ways as that brings life to others it in many, it in many ways does bring hope yeah that's really helpful Brian and I, I think we'll see some of those themes link up with what's going on in first corinthians as well but that i do love that so much of this ethical behavior in the bible uses this language of walking so here it's walking in god's ways but i I like how you've reframed that as you know um or not reframed but you know to think of it as as walking alongside others and and walking with our communities and um you know there's a very practical element to that but we should move on to matthew yes Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By The Well, for extra content and discussion? So we're still in Matthew's 5, um, starting at verse 21 today with uh, Jesus' long speech, the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. And here, we've, we've just before this last week, we talked about Jesus talks about, you know, I will not abolish one law. I've come to fulfill the law. Um and now he's going to get into some nitty-gritty of how we interpret and he's, he's quoting a couple of the, um, you know, commandments we would know from what we call the Ten Commandments or Decalogue, uh, murder, adultery, and then he goes on to divorce and mm. some other things. Um, mm. The first thing I want to say is it's really easy for preachers to fall into a trap of making Jesus the exceptional Jew <laughs> here that you know (laughs) jesus has got the only or the right interpretation of the law and no other jew in the history of judaism have ever thought about interpreting in these ways and i think um it it goes back to i think the deuteronomy passage is so important to put alongside this because we as we talked about it's all about life and a lifestyle Mm. it's not legalistic in that negative judicial sense um and so we need to see jesus participating in that tradition which is about how do we live out these laws and what are they trying to encourage mm. us to do? Um, 
So, I mean, for me, I think the gist of this, if I could summarize it, is that Jesus is actually demanding a higher ethic. Mm. So the example is, you know, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. Um, mm. But I say if you're angry with a sister or brother, you're liable mm. to judgment. And, I mean, immediately for all of us, I think, I mean, mm. it takes me about 10 minutes on the road driving to work in the morning to be angry at somebody. I get a bit of road rage. <laughs> um, you know, all of a sudden it, it's this, I feel like it's almost a great leveller. It, it cuts mm. through our piety because, you know, we might mm. go, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. I haven't murdered anyone today or I haven't committed adultery. But who hasn't been angry who hasn't maybe lusted after someone attractive? Like, I mean, you know, and, and Jesus is kind of upping the ethical ante really by just going, if you've done this, you're just as bad because that's what the law is pointing to. Don't, I, I don't know yeah. how you interpret what Jesus is going on. Yeah. Here, right? I, I, I think that you're, you're bang on the money there. I mean, a lot of those standards, I guess, that Jesus uh, talks about um, is near impossible. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I guess for me when I was when I was reading through Matthew five um, and that language uh, being used, um, it's also coupled with um, some very uh, you know uh, horrific um, you know conditions, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the hell of fire was one of th- one thing that popped out for me, and, and immediately um, as a person of um, Pacifica heritage, I, I immediately felt uh, thought about um, you know. Uh, Israel Folau, you know that that Australian rugby player, yeah. Tongan rugby player, um, and that that sort of language that he was um, preaching about in in you know those who are you know unrighteous and not doing certain behaviour will go to hell, right? Um, yep. So you know, it, it, I mean, for the, for those of us who listen more intently and carefully, we know Jesus isn't really talking about this as such but those who are are, are a little bit more uh, literal with the approach to the text this this can be a bit of a problem yeah did you want to say something about that Rob? yeah um sure i mean the first thing to say is the language we get usually translated as hell here is a particular word gehenna mm. um which in the old testament gehenna is a a literal place outside Jerusalem associated with child sacrifice to other gods. So a horrific place, but a very human kind of place where terrible things happened. Um, probably by the New Testament in the in the period, you know, those couple of centuries before the New Testament, um, it becomes more metaphorical as this fiery mm-hmm. place associated with judgment and terrible things and wickedness. So this kind of threat that you'll go to Gehenna or the fires of Gehenna is is something Matthew in particular likes. <laughs> he's he's mm. I think I think of Matthew's gospel as the weeping and gnashing of teeth gospel. <laughs> I mean I, I yes. love I love Matthew, but he, he he likes to invoke these images of fiery hell and um you know he's quite apocalyptic in that sense. It's um so in a mm. in a way he's more vividly doing I think something a bit like the Deuteronomy passage is doing, which is Here's the mm. standard. Strive for it because that's the life-giving standard. Um, but if yeah. you don't, it's 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 death reframed, right? <laughs> but now fiery hell mm. kind of. Um, I, I don't think we should take this literally. This is not yes. you do one bad thing, <laughs> you're angry one day and you're going to hell forever. I don't think, mm. you know, it has a metaphor of a fiery judgment, but I don't think we're talking about anything like later medieval concepts of eternal punishment type places. That's yeah. not not quite what's going on here. 
Yeah. So it, I, I, was, I was also thinking about, um, and then later on in that passage, um, we we have the whole, um, you know, if you, you know, but the, the the teachings about adultery, and then um, Jesus says, well, I would say, you know, even looking um, and and lusting in the heart, it'd be better for you to to, to take your right eye and and you know, excuse excuse me to our listeners, but Jesus does says to tear it out and and throw it away, <laughs> um, and then in verse thirty he says to cut your right arm and throw it away. Um, you know, that that type of language we can which can be quite uh, provocative. Yeah, it's very um, violent, yeah, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah. So again, I would probably put this in the same category as the hell language. I think, you know, if we take this as Jesus teaching, it's this dramatic, hyperbolic kind of, you know, is, is mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I don't think I don't think in Jesus' day or for us as readers two thousand years later, we should be reading this as literally go cut off your arm or take out your eye. Um, mm-hmm. But it is. It, I think it's there for rhetorical effect, that this is serious, right? It's a way of saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fascinating thing about this adultery bit here, and um, I, I got this from um, Craig Keener's Matthew commentary, who's an evangelical uh. scholar in America, and he points out that Jesus is talking to men here. The assumed audience is men. If you're looking at a woman with lust, um, mm-hmm. probably didn't have any lesbians in mind. So, you know, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you're looking at a woman with lust, you know, you've already committed adultery um, and, you know, Keena points out that in a culture that blamed women for men's desire, and perhaps we might say our culture is still not that different, um, he doesn't say to women, go cover yourselves up. He yep. says to men, yep. your desires, your lusts are on you. And mm. and it's to the men he's saying, don't even look with lust because if you do, you might as well tear out your eyes because God has no time for that. Um, mm. So it's, it's a pretty um, – it's not to let women off the hook, but I, I do like that. That's a, that's a very clear like, men, you're responsible yeah. for your own thoughts. Stop blaming the women. Mm. Um, it's interesting that um, Jesus does uh, a lot of that, and and it's not just in Matthew five, right? It's right mm. throughout the Gospels. This whole self-reflective, um, you know, you being uh, to look at your yourself, right? You know, yeah. look at the, um, you know, look at the log in your own eye. That that type of um, thing. Um, but also, you know, what you said there about rhetoric um, is quite intriguing because I'm linking Matthew 5 back to Deuteronomy. Mm. Um, and it seems that Jesus, in, in some respects, is mocking the casuistic language of Deuteronomy. Mm. Um, where, you know, we, we, we get this whole, if you do good stuff, um, you, you get blessed. If you do bad, you, you get um, cursed. Um, and then Jesus, with his rhetoric, which is, as you said, um, quite exaggerating and um, and out of this world, um, and, and can seem a, a bit outlandish, um, it does rhetorically serve some sort of um, a mocking purpose, right? A mocking purpose. Yeah, yeah. I can uh, see how you. you, you I mean, I think it could be read like that. I think you know, we've got to see Jesus here as a kind of in that rabbi kind of tradition of, you know, he's playing with, we know ancient Jews, you know, around this time and and centuries before and after, you know, Mm. hotly debated how you interpret these these commandments, what, you know, what you do with them, what the actual implications are. And I think Mm -hmm. there might be a bit of sceptical rhetoric here of like, you know, you know, you can get it with the, you've heard it said, but I say, I mean, he's clearly kind of wanting to shake things up, um, Mm. be a a bit radical. Um, but underneath that, I think is saying, 
that your your attitude, you know, is is serious. And I mean, when I read this, I was thinking, how does this apply today? I mean, obviously, we can still talk about anger and adultery and lust, but I was thinking, you know, we have attitudes today. So, you know, one of the things I've been learning a lot about in the last couple of years is um, systemic racism, and and mm. we can have, you know, a lot of Christians would say, well, I'm not racist. I've never, you know, actively abused someone who's different to me or, you know, whatever. Mm. I'm a good person. Mm. And yet the attitude underneath that, I mean, all of us, if we're honest, mm. have, um, you know, biases and prejudices where we think things and we check mm. ourselves, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is a way about getting to the attitude underneath that again goes back to the are you loving your neighbour? Like are you yeah. loving your spouse if you're actually – even if you never act on it, but you're secretly lusting after someone else, you know, mm. uh, you know, are you, yeah, I don't know. I think it, but it goes to what you said before, Brian, about it's that self-examination There, there is a very demanding standard of righteousness in Matthew's gospel. Yeah, um, indeed. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about this? I mean, I guess the other thing that I thought was really interesting is back in verse 23-ish, which ties very clearly how our love of God and love of humans has to go together. Um, mm. So if, you know, if you're bringing your gift to the altar like an offering, but you realise that, you, you know, you've got an unresolved conflict basically, you need to be reconciled first. So, you know, there is something here about we can't just be the Sunday Christians who think we're right with God if we're actually not right with other people. That's right. And I, and I think um, that, that – you know that that whole loving God, um, loving human um, dynamic is. You know we should we should be pushing that whole loving human um, element because you know ultimately that that's what um, that's how we act on loving God, right? Uh, the, yeah. That's how we reflect loving God is our love for others, yep. um, and 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 a lot of the time. Um, we, we, you know, we can be guilty of saying we love God, but we don't love our fellow humans. And, you know, when you, when you think about Jesus' rhetoric here, it's that you're, you're contradicting yourself by saying that. Um, but also, um, you know, in light of, and, you know, I'm, I'm speaking in here in, I mean, I'm back in Samoa now, but I'm like, as, as also an Australian, I'm also um, wanting to, you know, think more along the lines of reconciliation, mm. uh, and how how we can sort of, and as Christians, um, how we can also um, promote that walk with, for reconciliation, um, for you know, for for, for truth telling, and and also gearing towards treaty. Right? Um, yeah. Those are the relationships that we need to to try and get right first before we do anything else. Yeah, um, and so when, when we're not doing that, we're guilty of of not adhering to Jesus's words here. So yeah, I, I was, I was yeah. thinking along on that lines too. No, I think I think that's that's spot on, and the, and the you know we cannot separate the righteousness towards or the right action towards our our neighbours, and of course that reconciliation word, you know, we're not. We're recording this not too long after mm. Australia's national holiday, sometimes called Australia Day, Invasion Day. It's, it's a very contested space for non-Australian listeners um, uh, because it's it's a day that, you know, uh, commemorates mm. the arrival of white people and all the problems of that that have still gone somewhat unacknowledged. Um, 
so yeah, that reconciliation could definitely be expanded to the community level, and um, and, you know. and 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 might I add also that the the word reconciliation for our um, you know indigenous uh, mm. you know folk um, is it can be problematic because reconcile meaning that we've done something beforehand which really we haven't, so it's yes. more of a conciliation, I guess. Yes, yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's such a good point. Um, yeah, if if, if if preachers were going to pick up on that little bit of the text and talk about reconciliation, I would encourage you you need to do a much deeper theological dive into other parts of the Bible to see that yes. true reconciliation actually requires repentance and mm-hmm. making up for wrongs and a whole lot of other actions. It's not about um, easy forgiveness and making yes. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. a whole other episode. <laughs> we could yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, lastly, First Corinthians. So this is the last of our five-week series, I think, on, on from 1 Corinthians and here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, um, where we really get Paul shifting, I think, the application of what's gone before. So we've had all this stuff over the last few weeks about wisdom and foolishness and Christ crucified is, you know, is God's wisdom, but it's human foolishness, etc. sort of flipping things around. And now we get this sense of how that applies to Christian communities and to particularly Paul's relationships with the Corinthians. And, I mean, we've already had strong rhetoric we've been talking about today, but, um, you know, he starts off basically going, you're babies and you only can eat baby food. I mean, he's talking talking about them as your infants in Christ, your infants in your faith. Um that probably doesn't look so offensive to us, but I suspect that might have been quite offensive to grown adults in Corinth who thought they were quite worldly wise. Um, mm. And, you know, he's justifying why they haven't been ready to hear this bit of his message yet is because they haven't been ready. They're too fleshly. They're, you know, acting in human ways, not spirit. So we get in Paul's letters this juxtaposition of behaving humanly or fleshly, uh, sarkikoi, um, versus spiritually. Um and the marks of, we probably know if you know your Bible from other parts of the Bible, Paul will talk about gifts of the Spirit and what some of those are, kindness, gentleness, etc. Here we're getting a little hint of some of the, the things associated with the flesh, which are jealousy, quarreling, division. So this example in very practical terms there, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, this idea of factions and human leaders. And Paul's just cutting across all of that there. Um and basically saying, we're all just servants of God and we all do our bits. And he uses a whole lot of planting, growing metaphors. But God grows and God, therefore, alone deserves the glory. So it kind of cuts through this self-glorification or the division or the factions um, go- going on in the community here. And that seems to um, also tie in with a lot of what's happening in our modern times, right? Um yeah. You know the different. I mean, not just. I mean, not just the obvious factions of you know between denominations, um, but also within um, denominations, right? Mm. Yeah, I think we get in any church community, you get mixed motives for leadership or people who, you know, it. it I find this hard because, in a sense, he's saying the individual's not important. It's all about God and focusing on God's ministry, which is, of course, right. It's not to say we don't stop and thank people and we don't acknowledge people's gifts and we don't build people up. Mm. But ultimately, 
it shouldn't be about any, you know, it cuts across any power brokers in churches and I don't know if you what you had in mind there, yeah. Brian. Oh, no, I, I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking about when when you think about, um, I mean, a lot of the uh, the political stuff in, that happened in our church is a result of that whole, um, you know, uh, desire for, to become leaders um, mm. and then power hungry, trying to stay in power, yeah. um, that type of thing. So, I mean, those, those type of... Uh, dynamics within um, church communities um, can build, uh, be a problem. So this text does actually help us to, to try and look at ways of um, acknowledging diversity um, yep. and also maintaining some sort of unity within that diversity. Yeah. yeah so. No, that's right. Um, I think it's a way to talk about I mean, so Paul, in this bit that we've got um, – if you're going to preach on this, he uses the plant messages, the planting, yes. watering, growing, but he'll go on and talk about him as the builder and someone does the foundation. And so there's two lovely metaphors for preachers to play with here that are mm. about, I mean, Paul will do it differently in other parts with the body and the members of the body, but basically saying everyone has a role and we all have different gifts, but there's got to be a common purpose. And maybe it's a chance for a preacher to think, you know, talk to their communities about what kind of community they are. Do they have divisions? Are they unified in purpose? Yeah. And and I guess that's um, when you hear that language of planting and and watering, it, it reminds us of um, a lot of that similar language in the Hebrew Bible, mm. um, especially when um, you know a lot of those post-exilic texts or those later texts who use that type of imagery and metaphor um, to talk about um, you know the hope of God for these communities. So um, there isn't very much, um, I mean, the, 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 there's not a lot of emphasis on divisions in those communities per se, but mm. more of trying to survive yeah. um, and therefore relying on God to plant, um, you know, the, mm. these communities to, to ensure that they grow um, and through God, faith in God, they grow. Um, so if we imagine that, um, that post-exilic context, mm. uh, and to you know to, to and reflect upon um, that when reading First Corinthians, uh, Corinthians um, we can make sense of um, some of those imageries um, in, in for that sort of Pauline community in, in, in yeah. Um, yeah and with what you've just said you've taken me back to Deuteronomy Brian in my brain because um you know again that the common the common purpose in a sense of that the unifying thing in that post-exilic community in the way Deuteronomy is telling the story is to return to the commandments and the statutes and the yeah. the, the covenant with God. That, right? Um, yeah. So it's about knowing the centre of your faith and, yeah. and the core thing that holds you together. Um, mm. And sometimes and that, we can that, lose that in church fights about the periphery, I think. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and and you know going back to that um also uh, you know we we i guess have after having all this sort of conversation um it, it should become then um a lot more emphatic in our minds um what the what the law is what the torah is it's not something that we're supposed to be real um meticulous to its letter um, but more of building and fostering relationships um, and, and also embracing the humanity within these communities um, to become better people. Um, so, yeah, I guess it becomes self-reflective as well. Yep. 
By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.